This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone on RN, where this week we're talking about suicide, an issue about which, culturally speaking, we don't quite seem to be able to make up our minds. Our reactions to suicide often depend on the era in which it takes place. When practised by ancient philosophers, suicide can take on a certain nobility of purpose. When practised by modern celebrities, it can be taken as an emblem of the emptiness of fame and fortune. And now the advent of voluntary euthanasia is changing our perceptions once again. This program from Patrick Stokes, and just a warning, it raises issues that could be distressing to some listeners. There's a very dark urban legend about this song. Gloomy Sunday was originally written by Hungarian composer Rezo Sheres in 1933. The story goes that the Hungarian authorities banned airplay of the song as it was causing too many people to die by suicide. The story is a myth. The song didn't spark a rash of suicides, and it was never banned in Hungary, though the BBC banned it during the war for fear of damaging morale. But that anxiety, that talking about suicide can actually provoke it, is very well founded. Absolutely, it's reasonable to talk about suicide in public forums. All of the guidelines about how to talk about suicide aren't about censorship. They're about talking about it responsibly or reporting on it in the media responsibly. But there are definitely better ways and not so good ways of doing it. Professor Jane Perkis is Director of the Centre for Mental Health in the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne and a noted expert on the influence of media coverage on suicide rates. Things that are regarded as not so good are things like talking explicitly about methods of suicide um, or locations of suicide um, and glorifying suicide or sensationalising it. The reason for that is that all of those things have been shown in academic literature to lead to so-called copycat acts. Conversely, things that are really good to do are to make sure that Um, There is a balance of stories that are about people overcoming a suicidal crisis. So stories of mastery of crises is a good thing to do. Um, And also just really quite simple things like including helpline information after a story, which the media for the most part has got much better at over time. The problem for us philosophers is that suicide also sits at the centre of some of the most important philosophical and existential questions. So... What happens when philosophers go to speak to the public about suicide? We'd like to put our, everything we say here under the heading of a, a very famous remark by the great Algerian philosopher Albert Camus. I'm sure you're familiar with it if you're, since you're here. Um, right at the beginning of his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, he writes, There is only one really serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. Deciding whether or not life is worth living is to answer the fundamental question in philosophy. All other questions follow from that. That's Dr John Rofe speaking there, my colleague from Deakin University. It's not a particularly gloomy Sunday today, but it is a very cold one. 
We're in a little Art Deco bar in Brunswick in Melbourne's inner north to hear John and Associate Professor Justin Clemens from the University of Melbourne speak about the philosophy of suicide. This is a Melbourne Free University Crossing Avenues event. Crossing Avenues is the brainchild of philosopher Dr. Valery Vinogradovs. I think it all started uh, with thoughts about a cultural niche for a philosopher or a thinker in general. Um, uh, It also stems from, um, uh, you know, a number of dissatisfying experiences with tertiary conferences and workshops, which uh, didn't please my taste in terms of the the way they're structured and topics that they pursue. With public philosophy, uh, it's different. You, you, You get all sorts of people who are interested in a topic that everyone is supposed to relate to, whether you're 15 or 75. I think in public philosophy, you just, whoever you are, if you have something to say on the topic of the discussion, uh, that's the only thing that matters, or if you just want to listen. As Justin Clemens notes right from the start, once we begin to talk about suicide philosophically, we find ourselves in a series of apparent conceptual roadblocks. Either people can commit suicide often because... They commit suicide for a value that exceeds the value of life itself. To, to literally die in order to sustain a value that otherwise would be lost if you decided to stay alive. And that's opposed to the very uh, other very common sense, which is people commit suicide because life has no value and that there are no values within life to sustain that life itself. Now, for philosophers, that first type of suicide, dying for a higher value or purpose, is central to the story that we tell about philosophy itself. Of course, I guess the the absolute locus classicus for this, when people come to give philosophical accounts of suicide, is the figure of Socrates himself, this fabulous father. He very famously is tried for impiety and for corrupting the youth in Athens. He's found guilty. There's a lot of argy-bargy. He's probably able to escape. His friends, some of his friends say, come on, run, don't die. And he he himself refuses to leave uh, very, very famously and, of course, drinks the cup of hemlock himself. And part of Socrates' power is throughout the dialogues of Plato is not a guy who gives you doctrine, but a guy who questions to the point where you can't say anything further. It's something around Socrates' suicide seems to be that's linked to the problem of questioning to the point where you're in a deadlock and there are no clear answers one way or the other. Now, his death itself seems to be the ultimate form of questioning that's possible philosophically by saying, I will not flee, I will not betray the laws of the city, this is a judgment to which I must submit and I will submit cheers. Nor was Socrates the only ancient philosopher to die this way. The Stoic Seneca, tutor to the Roman Emperor Nero, was also forced to end his own life in 65 AD. As John Rofe explains, Seneca's reasons were ultimately similar to those of Socrates. Seneca and the Stoic philosophers were, in a way, uh, great followers of Socrates, drawing on certain aspects of his teaching. In... uh, the writings of the great Diogenes Laertius, when he's describing the Stoics' relationship to suicide, this is what he says. 
The Stoics say that the wise man will commit a well-reasoned suicide, both on behalf of his country and on behalf of his friends, and if he falls victim to unduly severe pain or mutilation or incurable illness. So effectively, the Stoic philosophers, including Seneca, believe that the most important value was the good life, the happy life, the life of pleasure. Here's Seneca himself. He says, There is no life that is not short. It is with life as it is with a play. It matters not how long the action is spun out, but how good the acting is. It makes no difference at what point you stop. Stop whenever you choose. Only see to it that the closing period is well turned. So here again we have an idea that there's something that matters more than living per se, that is to say the good life. A good life defined now no longer in terms of something transcendent, as it was in Plato and in Jesus, but the imminent pleasure that one can enjoy in living. And that when this fails, when this goes away, then there, are, there is perfectly reasonable, rational, rational decision to make here to take one's own life. But can we apply these lessons from antiquity to contemporary suicide? Rofe and Clemens consider a very recent and very high-profile example. The suicide of Anthony Bourdain, the very famous um, TV chef slash personality, a latter-day renaissance man. A year, year ago last week is when he committed suicide in a Strasbourg hotel. This is somebody who, quote-unquote, had it all. Money, fame, family, success. And yet reported to friends for years beforehand that he didn't know anyone who wished to die more than he did. In this situation, we're dealing with a case of someone for whom the value of life, no matter its content, is evacuated, where life becomes literally meaning nil. Bourdain is certainly a timely case, but as Jane Perkis explained to me a few weeks after the talk, he's also quite a risky one. I guess if you think about the reason why copycat behaviours might happen and they're sort of based on modelling the behaviour of others. So, for example, in in contemporary reporting on suicide or com- contemporary communication about suicide, suicides by celebrities are particularly risky in terms of copycat acts because people revere those celebrities. People model behaviours of those they revere in some way or feel close to in some way. So someone from the dim, dark past is less likely, I guess, to have such an influence. As Justin Clemens explains, we tend to speak of modern suicides, like those of Anthony Bourdain, in a very different and more pathologised way compared to how we speak about Socrates or Seneca. When, you know, you read contemporary accounts from many of the institutions that are committed to the prevention of suicide, you'll see this double phrase recurs continuously, anxiety and depressive disorders, right? Bourdain, under this description, would clearly be something like having a depressive disorder. What's depressive is finding in the midst of the goods of life that life has lost all good and that there's no reason that actually it would be better not to be alive even though you have every good that's denominated to be the case in life. 
As for anxiety, anxiety is a way of talking about an intensity within life, but that has no transcendent value that goes beyond itself. So anxiety is one of the terms, at least if we could say in this doubleness, anxiety and depression. Anxiety is where you have an intensity, not just an anhedonia or a, or a separation from the meaning and the goods and the, the value, not, not even the pleasures that you have will, are, are enough to keep you there. On the contrary, the more pleasure you have, the more it just unveils its nugatoriness, its, its nihilism. On the other hand, with anxiety, maybe too much intensity, but this intensity is incapable of being coupled with a reason that goes beyond your own body itself. It seems natural enough that philosophers would be so interested in the problems of suicide. What may come as more of a surprise is that some philosophers have wondered whether suicide is conceptually possible. John Rofe explains. There's a very long tradition in the history of philosophy running back to the same sort of Greco-Roman philosophers that we've been talking about around the idea that death and selfhood are mutually exclusive. The idea that that where I am, death is not, to quote the very famous line from Epicurus. What does this mean for suicide? We can reflect, that's to say, on this long tradition of philosophical reflections on death from the point of view of suicide and discover something new or something at least worth thinking about, we would say. The idea of suicide being impossible. We need to begin with the great French literary critic and writer Maurice Blanchot. Blanchot picks up quite directly this idea this sort of stoic or epicurean idea that death is impossible. And so he asks, in light of this idea, how we could possibly understand the act of suicide as an act. Blanchot's argument here is that the very wanting of that thing, that thing that you want, is not something that's capable of entertaining as a genuine object of desire. While I think about doing it, I am capable of the act, but at the moment of the act, the I that chooses this is gone. So there's a very real sense for Blanchot that the thought of suicide is the greatest fantasy or the foundational fantasy in a certain way. It's something that we contemplate from outside of the act. It can never be a genuine, as it were, rational, clearly founded uh, thought or decision. This may sound a bit silly. People obviously do die by suicide. So how could it be impossible? Now, this sounds philosophical in the derogatory sense, but he's drawing attention to a very important point, which is to commit suicide is to act in a certain way. He thinks that this act, because it extinguishes the one who chooses, is not really an act. And this idea, the mutually exclusive notion of suicide and action, is one that has a lot of other proponents in the history of philosophy, which is that the act of suicide in many cases, if not all, if we're not willing to go with Blanchot and uh, Spinoza, occur because the agent is society, the social context, and not the person themselves. Suicide is always committed by two hands. The person themselves, as it were, whose hand is guided or controlled or forced by certain socioeconomic, sociopolitical conditions. Justin Clemens is likewise keen to stress that suicide is not just a solo act, 
but something that's done with and by the wider social context. But we do want to mark the very, very different socio-political situations and the accounts that people can give of suicide in very, very different social situations. So it's democratic Athens that kills Socrates. It's imperial Rome that Jesus is executed as, uh, I guess, the lowest of the low, as an as a absolute common criminal in a small, almost irrelevant uh, outpost of that empire, whereas uh, Seneca is uh, he's from the, the very uh, upper crust of the Roman imperial elite. It's true that Caligula hated him and ha- tries to have him killed at one stage. I think the same happens with Claudius, and then the same happens with Nero, who's the emperor under whom Seneca perishes. But very, very different circumstances from, let's say, the bottom of the Roman Empire and from the top of the Roman Empire too. So on the one hand, we want to talk about just indicate the circumstances, but also that within those circumstances, there's very, very different positions one can occupy. And then even from within those positions, high or low, that there's still a certain non-determinability about the reasons, the actors, and so forth. So we're still here in a situation where we want to sort of invoke this, this tradition of philosophy, some philosophers saying that suicide is impossible. Now it's impossible in the further sense, namely that Suicide is always the act of a social context and never the act of a person in the sense that we would normally ascribe agency to somebody. This is RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone, and this week we're exploring some of the issues raised by suicide. Soon there'll be candles and prayers that are said I know Let them not weep let them know that I'm glad to go. Whether in its ancient or modern incarnations, suicide comes tangled up in strange paradoxes, not least the paradox of choice, one's decision to choose to die, which is increasingly conceived as a species of freedom. But that freedom comes with certain philosophical caveats. Our guide through the ethical jungle this week is Patrick Stokes, along with John Rofe and Justin Clemens, who were speakers at the recent Crossing Avenues Philosophy Workshop in Melbourne. Just a few days before this session, Victoria's voluntary assisted dying laws came into effect, making this the first place in Australia where people can legally end their own lives with medical assistance. Now it is legal in our state to choose to act in order to end your own life by yourself or through so-called assisted uh, euthanasia. Based on the discussion up to this point, you might think that Clemens and Rofe would welcome such a law. But in fact, drawing on the work of Michel Foucault, they see reasons to be wary of a political order that regulates dying in this way. We're not here to clearly to fight against the idea of euthanasia. But in this regard, we want to bring up this kind of, we believe, quite pertinent question of to what degree should we submit the act of dying or the possibility of death to its biopolitical regulation? The word that we would like to emphasise, though, given around the fact that we can now choose this in this state, is the word permit. You have to apply for a permit to do this, to legally kill yourself. Think about the word permit for a minute. 
what this describes. It's fundamentally a situation where we are asked for permission to die from the state government. The philosophical aspect we just want to add to this is, is a notion now quite famous, um, drawn from the work of Michel Foucault. He, just, he says that modern contemporary societies no longer function by wielding a power to kill, the right to death, but instead function in order to manage life, to manage the living body of the populace. What we see in this permission, this structure, is a further step. Now we have the submission of our very capacity to legally die being incorporated into the management of our lives as members of society. The problem for what Foucault calls biopolitics, exactly as John says, is the attempt to not just let die, but to make live for the government to take, or governmental controls, to infiltrate and take control positively of every aspect of your life, from birth to death and beyond, from the medical, the legal, the political, the active, are all integrated from the very, very beginning into a total system that is interested in taking control of the most minimal aspects of life and retaining that control at all costs. Now, for you, that is not, or for us, that's not a value, it's not a virtue, it's not a transcendent good, it's not a question of honour, but it's a question of a kind of, I guess, orthopraxy in accordance with the laws of life as they are delivered uh, medically and, and legally simultaneously. And it's that fusion of the medical and the legal with the optic of population health that constitutes the biopolitical, like one, one strong aspect of the biopolitical uh, uh, frame. And as such, it means that there is no value whatsoever that the state or the government, I should probably say, that biopolitics per se, there is no value that it affirms or denies in particular. It doesn't offer any transcendence. It doesn't offer any modes for good life. It doesn't offer an ethics in any particular way. What it does enjoin you to do though, or makes impossible for you not to do, is to treat even the end of your life as anything other than a bureaucratic permission of the same order as anything else within your life itself. Should I get takeaway for dinner? Should I ask for a permit to die? Should I? Now, whatever we think about this situation, the point in the terms that I guess we've been trying to elaborate is that biopolitics tries to reduce is there a meaning excessive to life or does life have no meaning? This is a, a deadlock of utter indifference to biopolitics. Do we have powers of decision and act? This also is a question of utter, uh, uh, of utter irrelevance. It's a purely medico-legal, pragmatic bureaucracy that's at stake, not any sort of value or mode of life. All this talk of death may seem pretty bleak, but in fact... Justin Clemens and John Rofe see their ultimate message today as concerned with dying well and living well. The question, what is a good death, is a question that we should not relinquish. Today, more than ever, the question, what is a good death, becomes the centre, perhaps, of a certain kind of reflection on, a philosophical reflection on life. 
the moment that we relinquish that question to some pre-established set of procedures or indeed in a certain way to any kind of other framework that would choose on our behalf, philosophy must be there to say the question has to stay open. What is a good death? And that's hopefully we've at least tried to kind of bring this question to the fore a little bit. To bring it back to how we began with the myth of Sisyphus, uh, from which the quote that John read out uh, came from. Camus ends that book with a, a kind of line that has been much mocked, um, not least by John and myself, and obviously by many, many other people, which we have to imagine Sisyphus happy. Now, why is this? Sisyphus is already dead. He's consigned to an eternal punishment in the afterlife of pushing a rock uphill. It rolls down. It's horrible and hard. It rolls down again, and he just does that again and again for all eternity. This is bad infinity, right? He knows the horrible grinding thing he has to do every day, if indeed there are days in the, in the underworld, and he knows it fully. So this is a fully philosophical guy. He knows what he has to do. He, can't, he knows he can't do anything else. He knows it will happen infinitely and there's no limit to his knowledge since he's, since he's now dead and he knows the other side of death. But uh, Camus says, we have to imagine Sisyphus happy. I'm not quite sure what he means by that, but one of the things I guess I would say in the, the wake of uh, what we've been talking about today is, you know, it's a critique of I guess, biopolitics and of anxiety and depressive disorders. No matter how shit this repetition is, no matter how, how much you know, 100% with absolute certainty, that you're never going to get out of it, it's necessary to imagine that this is the limit of happiness or even the very basis of happiness. Otherwise, what? Jane Perkis was also very keen to stress the importance of hope. The things that lead people to the point where that seems to be the only choice for them um, are multiple and complex and very difficult to unpick. Um, but if you talk to people who have made a suicide attempt and survived it, a lot of them will tell you they're really pleased to have survived it. So uh, it definitely shouldn't be people's only choice. Perhaps that thought would have been helpful to Resho Sheres, the composer of Gloomy Sunday. We'll never know, as he died in 1968 by suicide. If this program has raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636. And on RN, you've been listening to The Philosopher's Zone, this week produced and presented by Patrick Stokes. More information about today's guests on the website, and of course, for download or podcast, you can find us via the ABC Listen app. I'm David Rutledge. Join me again next week for a discussion about Freud and the influence of psychoanalysis on contemporary philosophy. Freud had uh, mixed feelings about philosophy. He thought that philosophers had a lot in common with people experiencing psychosis. So you have to wonder what he might have thought of the enthusiastic embrace given to psychoanalytic insights by figures such as Heidegger and Derrida. That's The Philosopher's Zone, Getting Freudian, with me, David Rutledge, and I hope you can join me. Bye for now.
Thank you.